backward. Here we go. I always forget that part. Let us pray. Gracious and holy God, we receive from you this morning a hard word that none who have will be able to enter the kingdom easily. And so we pray that you will open our eyes and our hearts to the ways in which we are attached to possessions, the way that we are attached to the things of this world that prevent us from seeing and knowing and being a part of your kingdom. As we reflect on this text this morning, we ask you to bless the meditations of our hearts and my words so that they are pleasing and acceptable to you, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. So last summer, uh, some of you may remember that I injured my lower back and I was immobilized sometimes for days on end. Uh, The last day that I had without pain that I remember was July 4th during our 4th of July church party. I remember with great, uh, with good memory that I could lift things that day and it has been a long time since. And the next day I was in electric pain that only stopped if I lay down and didn't move at all. There were no painkillers that helped, and standing was impossible for more than seven minutes at a time. I tried to time it so that I knew exactly how long I had every time I needed to stand up. And frankly, I began to believe that I would never have mobility again. I went into that spiral of, oh no, this is permanent. And here's what I know eight months after that experience. I have a new compassion for this rich young man in this story and his reaction to Jesus. Because as I was studying this text this week, I was thinking about what it might be really about. I mean, some would say money, and yes, absolutely that. And some would say it's about possessions, absolutely that too. The sin that having wealth visits upon us, where we get to a point where that's all we want and all we're focused on, uh, which is definitely different than what poverty does to us, right? It's still harmful, but harmful in a different way. So all of those things. But as I was thinking about this text, I began to think that it might really be at its heart about attachment and about what our allegiance is to. You see, this young man, his heart is, is so clear, but he's so attached. He's so attached to so many things. And when Jesus tells him to get unattached to them, give away this thing, this one thing, he is devastated. This story seems like it's about wealth, but there's something deep underneath this young man's unwillingness to give up what he owns, to give it to the poor, and to go on to follow Jesus. And that thing, I think, is ego. What did I discover that I was attached to last year? And why did I tell you about my back? Well, I was attached to my mobility, something that many people around me do not have on a day-to-day basis. I, I couldn't sit. I couldn't walk. I could barely type because I wasn't able to bend at the waist. Work, something that I love and and to which my identity is very seriously tied, became nearly impossible. My job is nearly all sitting, after all, with sitting with people, typing on a computer. I couldn't meet with people without humiliating myself by having to lie down in public wherever I was meeting with them. There are numerous coffee shops in this city that think of me as the lady who can't stay in her chair. I had to do it to stop the pain. It was the only thing that I knew how to do, and I cried in front of more strangers than I care to admit. 
I grieved the loss of my mobility, which at that point I thought might be, temp- might be permanent, but it ends up being slightly temporary. But, but what was really under that, what was I really grieving? It was vulnerability. It was being dependent on others, being unable, unable truly, to help myself or to be helped even in the ways that I thought I needed. And of looking and actually being incompetent. My identity took a huge hit because I was unable to do anything that I was accustomed to. And over time, I realized what I lost wasn't my mobility. It, I did lose that, but it was really my sense of self. Who am I, I began to ask, if I can't work, if I can't move, if I have to lean so heavily on other people's graciousness to me instead of on my own independence? Some people will say, yes, Jules, this is what comes with age. This is what comes. But I had not been prepared for it. And I began to think about what I was really attached to this week. And I realized that it was my pride. And that's where I began to understand this young man in a new way. Because if I had the ability, the opportunity to approach Jesus the way that he did in this story, I think now that I know what Jesus would have said to me. Now I would not be able to claim that I've kept all the commandments like he did. I have to confess my, my 20s were rough. <laughs> and... Even in my 30s, let's be honest, I can't claim to always tell the truth or to not ever covet or to honor my father and my mother in every moment. I, I'm definitely a work in progress, and I cannot say like this young man that I have kept the commandments since my youth. This guy is clearly better than me on all of those scores. But, but Jesus, I just know it, Jesus would have lasered in on what I am attached to, just like he did with that young man. I think he would have said to me, Jules, do you want to be good? You want to inherit eternal life? The only way we inherit anything is if something dies. If someone dies, you want to inherit, die to your usefulness. Give up your work. Give up your attachment to your identity as someone who does this thing, whatever it is, and is competent, capable, able independent. Abandon your sense of pride. In fact, be humiliated, leave it behind, and then come and follow me. This is the only way you'll know what to do with the cross that I've given you. And for me, that would have been a direct hit right at the heart of my deepest attachments. We all have different things, but that is certainly one of mine. I I think I, like this rich young man, would struggle and fight and maybe even walk away from Jesus if that was what he asked of me. To not be allowed to have any pride? No, ma'am. Uh-uh. That's the hard one for me. Because this young man measures his worth in his own goodness, his behavior, his perfect track record in some ways. He is proud of himself. He's, his worth is wrapped up in thinking this about himself. He's, he's looking for affirmation from Jesus that he's done enough, that he's done a good job. 
He's doing the ancient version of Instagram. Andy and I talked about this this week, and he said, have you ever heard this word, Insta-fabulous? Where everything that is on your Facebook page and your Instagram page just shows how fantastic your life is. No one ever takes a picture of themselves in an awful situation or not having a good time or depressed or suicidal or fill in the blank, having a fight with their spouse. No, it's all vacation pictures. This guy's insta-fabulous. He's saying, I've got it together. His claim to Jesus publicly proclaims this. Nothing to see or change here. I'm good. And there's something arrogant about believing that you've perfectly kept the commandments. (laughs) Of course. But let's assume that he's not lying to Jesus. Let's assume that he's telling the truth. Because Jesus, after all, doesn't argue with him as he does with numerous others in the Gospels who make false claims to him or try to sidestep the truth. Jesus doesn't look at him and say, really, all of them? He simply lets it go. But if he gives up his possessions, he can still go on following the commandments, too. It's not like the thing that Jesus is asking of him will prevent him from following the law. Nothing will stop him from doing that. But he seems to also want proof of his goodness, of his good behavior. He wants the blessings of that, that he thinks are evidence to others of his goodness. Look at me. I must be doing everything right because I am blessed. He has signposts that he's put together, doing the right thing, being righteous. And that, for him, takes shape in his possessions that he is so attached to because they comfort him that he's doing okay. My mobility comforted me that I was doing okay. Look at me. I'm fine. I'm fine. I swear. I'm fine. Anybody ever had a, said or had a friend say to them, I'm fine, fine, it's all fine. What you really hear is, I'm not fine. I'm making this all look really good, but then what happens when that disappears from underneath our feet? Whatever our thing is, all of a sudden, not so good, huh? How easily we're shaken when the thing that we have is taken from us. Jesus knows exactly what questions will strike at the heart of the matter for us and the heart of the person. It's almost like he can do this individualized spiritual soul surgery. And that's what we see him do to this man. He finds exactly the thing that will shake his foundation. We all need this kind of soul surgery, of course. Not one of us gets out of this life alive, right? And not one of us gets out of these interactions with Jesus in one piece. We get healed, but we are different. And so I wonder... What would he ask you to give up? What's the surgery he would do on you? What is the one thing at the core of who you are? Maybe you don't even know what it is yet. What is, that's keeping you from being a full follower, disciple, believer, the witness that God wants you and needs you to be? It's a terribly hard question to answer because we are willfully unwilling to see what that thing is It's hard to name, but we all have one, or more than one. What are you so attached to that even Jesus would have difficulty convincing you to give it up if he was standing in front of you? What are you terrified to give up? What would make you go away from Jesus sad? An interesting note about this story, did you ever notice uh, 
all the people in Mark's gospel, which we've spent now weeks and weeks in, all of the people in Mark's gospel who kneel in front of Jesus and ask for a blessing, either have some sort of dreaded disease or are possessed by demons. Every single one. And this man is one of those people. He kneels in front of Jesus. And there's no coincidence. Mark isn't making a mistake. It's not just that he's using the same word over and over again. He's making a point. This man is diseased as well. He's diseased by what he's attached to. He's diseased. He's possessed even. He's possessed by his possessions. What if this scene then isn't just the liberal version of an altar call? What if it's a healing story? And what Jesus is doing is trying to heal this man of the thing that is most debilitating to him. I think it's essential that Jesus prefaces this interaction with the rich young man and his refusal to give up his possessions and follow Jesus by pulling a child onto his knee. If you read the scriptures, just bef- the text just before this story, Jesus talks about children And he says, basically, now this is my paraphrase. No one will accept this as a translation. But he says, don't be like that. Don't be like what you're like right now. Be like this instead. It is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. So what's the difference between this man who wants to inherit eternal life? He wants it. You can see it. In this story, he approaches a teacher specifically to ask what to do. What's the difference between him and a child who Jesus says eternal life already belongs to just by how they are, by who they are? Now, most of you know I don't have kids of my own. Um, My parental vocation, as I think of it, is to have nurturing relationships with other people's children to show what healthy adults and good boundaries look like with them. And I have a calling to build a village that surrounds young people as sort of an auntie type, right? I'm the one to whom I always say to my friends, my, uh, the, my godchildren, the kids in my life, when you need to run away, you run away to me. When you need a place to go and be non, have somebody not judge you, you can come to me. I will listen to you. And I think that's an important role. And it means that I have a lot of kids in my life who I have seen misbehaving. I, what I know is that nearly none of the children in my life, barring, I'm sure, all of the ones in this room, um, not a single one of them is calm or biddable or easy, like the pictures of our little white Jesus holding a sweet blonde toddler that's in all of our stained glass, right? It's like people who make stained glass don't have children. <laughs> the kids I know are opinionated. The kids I know say inappropriate things in public and humiliate me on a regular basis. Sometimes or often, they tell the truth in horrifying ways, usually to people I do not wish to have hear that truth. They laugh out loud and they scream in public when they're hurt. They embarrass me in the grocery store. When I was at my last church, university, uh, or Sorry, New Horizons United Methodist Church. It's hard not to remember that, right? Um, I got a real-life illustration of this. Uh, two grandparents were caregivers to a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. Their grand- granddaughters, they were fostering them. 
And both of these girls were already um, very traumatized. They had a long and dark history of abuse and trauma and abandonment. They were delightful. I loved these kiddos. And they had an impulsivity streak and a temper a mile wide. The younger one, Raven, was particular, I'm never supposed to say this, but she was a particular favorite of mine in that church. One Sunday during the weekly pre-worship potluck, we had weekly potlucks. It was quite a thing. Um, About 10 minutes before worship was uh, to start, she had this flip your lid moment. We've all seen people have these. Sometimes we've had them ourselves, but it was that flip your lid moment where you're like screaming and throwing things and breaking things. She was crying so hard that tears were popping out of her face instead of falling down her cheeks. And sometimes this happened. I, I, I was around Raven since she was a baby. I, I knew sometimes this happened, but usually we could calm her down uh, with a little bit of effort and in time for worship. This morning, though, she was so freaked out and overwrought that she would literally not let anyone touch her or talk to her. She was like a wounded animal. And like a wounded animal, she hid. She actually hid under a pew in the fellowship hall and tucked herself into a corner and crouched into a little ball and cried. And we couldn't stop the crying. Nothing anyone did worked to stop her meltdown. Now, I... I don't know much about parenting, but what I do know is that when I feel like that, I feel terribly alone. And I don't want people to talk to me or touch me, but I also don't want them to abandon me, right? And I swear, the Spirit spoke to me. I can remember so clearly that morning and said, Jules, you just get right down on the floor and just be quiet, but don't go anywhere. And so I didn't. I didn't go anywhere. Time crawled. As you can imagine, I'm a very punctual person, and the idea of being late to my own worship service was very scary to me. I had 75 people waiting for me to start worship, and here I was on the floor with a five-year-old in the fellowship hall. I was in the wrong building. But I had to tell everyone to go to the sanctuary without me. And after a few minutes of quiet and me not going anywhere, finally I remember Raven popped one eye open. And she stopped crying for a moment. And she reached out to me and she let me pick her up. And I found out that she was a whole lot like a rhesus monkey. She... She wouldn't let me put her down. Once I had her, she like wrapped her legs around my waist and had her arms around my neck and she was snotty and loud and crying and she was getting things all over my dress and I just had to hold her on my hip. I didn't really have a choice. And she kept crying and kept clinging to me through the welcome song and then through the prayer time and then through the offering and then the passing of the peace and then the sermon. I was standing there with a child on my body and we, at one point I realized that we were clinging to each other and she was still sobbing at intervals and wiping her snot all over my clothing for the whole service. 
And afterward, I was finally able to put her down and give her to her grandmother, and my arms were numb and my back was aching. But I learned something from that experience. No one paid attention to a single word I said for that entire worship service. After worship, half the adult congregation came up to me at one point or another and said something like, Raven's sense of safety and my willingness, thanks to God's grace and the visitation of the Spirit, was all the gospel they needed that morning. One ruffled fellow, my uh, associate pastor, Danny, he'd been in ministry for 50 years and had um, served in children's services for 30 years as part of his ministry, so he had seen everything, said that he saw God's promise to never leave us embodied in Raven that day. I'm grateful for that message. I'm grateful for what they experienced in her but it wasn't pretty. It was awful. It was ugly and snotty and flushed and imperfect and vulnerable and humiliating to her and exhausting to me. It was hard for both of us. And the entire time I was thinking, I could just kill whoever did this to her. But all I could do was hold her and let her cry. And this is what children are actually like. This is what God wants from us. This kind of trust. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, let the little children come to me. You cannot get into the kingdom of heaven unless you are like this one. Unless you give up your pretension. Do you want me? This is how you get to come. And this is how I want you. Be like this. Come to me at your worst, not at your best. Give me all the things that you're attached to. They really just bind you and hold you captive. Things, relationships, ideas about what makes you stable in the world and your sense of self even. Give it over. And I will give you true peace and true stability and true freedom. Even your mothers and fathers and children and homes, all of that. Loosen your worldly attachments to them, and I will show you true relationship that does not hold you prisoner, but gives you peace in the face of anything that life hands you. That level of vulnerability, the level of vulnerability that Raven showed to all of us that day, is what Paul means in the epistles when he says that Christ, truly embodying Christ, will be a scandal to the world. Because what Raven did and was able to show us was the opposite of what the world teaches us we should do. We should behave. We should be fine. We should look good. We should not make other people uncomfortable. We should not interrupt what has already been set forward. We should have pride in ourselves. But Paul says that our weakness is God's strength. And that when we show that vulnerability, in fact, we are highlighting the ways in which God is good and strong and capable in ways that we are not. I think about what those people said to me after worship about Raven, and I wonder, how else will God's love be seen in us? How will we see it in the world unless we're willing to be our true and full selves, present 
in all of letting go of the things that the world has tied us down with and told us we have to be. Like this young man who seems to have it all, Jesus still says, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. And I think, Jesus, I am lacking more than one thing. (laughs) But he says, you lack one thing. You lack true faith in God. This is what he says to this young man. The only way to be truly healed is to let go of what is ailing us in faith. And to have faith, we have to practice it. And that means sacrifice. It means giving up something. We talk about in Lent giving up things, right? Giving up chocolate or my husband gives up peanut butter every year and I'm like, Mom, I think we should talk to Jesus about this and how much of a sacrifice. He says, I really love peanut butter, Jules. But what are the things we give up? Well, the definition of sacrifice is an act of giving something of value for the sake of something else that is regarded as more important and more worthy. Is Jesus more worthy than whatever it is you're holding on to? Whatever it is you're attached to? Is Jesus more worthy than my pride? A key to sacrifice is giving up something valued. I just said that. We, what, we seldom are confronted with giving up things that we value for the sake of Christ who should be regarded as more important or worthy. We don't often get that opportunity or we don't take it. I think about how often things are donated to the church, things that someone wants to get rid of, something that is no longer important to them. Such giving can't be called a sacrifice. I used to work in a domestic violence shelter. I was there for seven years, and I was in charge of all of the goods and items that came in and out of the shelter and all of the people who came in and out. And one of my jobs every week was to go through the food donations, and every week I would wonder why we got other people's garbage food. Dented cans, broken things, outdated things. This is not a sacrifice. This is not faithfulness. But we all do this. We give only, only what's easy sometimes. This is true emotionally and spiritually as well. If you only give from what's comfortable, Jesus will see that you, when you go away sad from him in the end, he will know that you only gave what was easy. He knows the condition of our hearts, where you're really giving from. Are you giving from your self-idolized strength, where you feel good? Or are you giving from your vulnerability? I think he knew that this young man was giving only from his strength. It was easy for him to follow the commandments, not a challenge. And so he asked him to do something that was hard. Now, here's some good news. In the story, the young man does go away sad. He does. But I also notice we don't know where he goes. We don't know if he goes away forever. The story doesn't tell us that he never came back or that he never approached Jesus again. And so what I see is this openness that he could, in fact, at any time return to Jesus and say, Teacher, I have done what you asked of me. I'm sorry that I didn't do it when you first asked, but I needed to go away and think about it. I needed to pray about what it was you were really asking me, and I, finally, I have done what you asked, and now I'm ready to follow. I think Jesus would have said, Yes, come. 
do this with me, follow me, now you are ready. And the reason that I think he would say that and that the invitation would always be open is that this is the only place in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where we are told that Jesus loves somebody. That he loves a particular person. Now in John we hear that there's a beloved disciple, a disciple whom Jesus loved. But in these three texts, this man is beloved by Jesus. And you don't turn away someone you love when they return to you asking for forgiveness. It's the only place where we hear this. Jesus has compassion that, yes, this is hard. What I am asking of you is difficult. I know that it is not easy. There is a reason that I call it a cross. But he loves you even when you struggle with it. And I think that that's what we hear with this story. And so, friends, this week, I just pray that perhaps you will have heard in this story, maybe in Raven's story, and in the tales that are to come this Lent, as we continue to journey toward the cross with Jesus, that you will discover the thing or the things that are holding you back from saying a full yes to Jesus. And I pray that you will give up what possesses you, what captivates you, and give it over so that you can, in fact, say, assured, yes, I will follow you. And so may you be vulnerable and open and come to Jesus like a little child, not like this rich young ruler did. But I pray that you will be free of what binds you and healed of it. And when you find liberation in this way through vulnerability, through generosity, that you will get to be generous, that you'll be invited into opportunities of generosity and graciousness with your lives, that you'll pour yourselves out and give yourself away to those in need, not out of your strength, but out of your weakness. Such generosity is not a condition of being a disciple, but a consequence of it. People will know that you are following Christ when they see you act in this way. It is, in fact, I think, the answer to every problem that plagues this world. So may it be so in this church, in your home, on our streets, and in the world, this Lent, whatever you give up. Amen.